You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. That you've chosen to worship with us today, and my genuine hope is that the service is an encouragement to you and that uh, you'll come back and join us again. We're in the book of Exodus working our way uh, slowly but surely through the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at the second of the ten this morning. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the second book of the Bible, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one underneath the seats in front of you, and you're welcome to take that out so you can follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that one with you. Uh, I don't know that we could give you any better gift than a copy of the Word of God. So we would love to be able to do that. Um, Before we jump into the text this morning, a couple of reminders. The survey we gave out a couple of weeks ago, I hope that uh, many of you have filled that out and have let us know some of the ways you feel like God's gifted you, some of the experiences he's given you, or education that he's provided to you so that uh, if ever a need arises in our church that kind of fits with your skill set, we might be able to call on you. And look, that survey is just a way for us to say, hey, look, we think that there are multiple ways for the people of God to both serve one another and serve in the community. And so if you didn't get a copy of that, there are plenty out there in the Connection Center. You can just fill it out and drop it in one of the black boxes by the doors Second, you haven't uh, joined a small group yet. Let me encourage you to do that. Um, If you'll talk to T, who is our pastor of groups, or myself, or even uh, one of the group leaders who will be out at the connection desk afterward, they'll be able to tell you more about the groups, specifically some of the groups that have more room than others um, in them. And so, again, I've said this before, but I think that's how we grow in community with one another. So I would invite you to to step into a group. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. This is what the Holy Spirit writes in the scriptures. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Heavenly Father, as we work our way through these three verses of Scripture today, I pray that you would show us Amazing grace. God, the grace that would allow us to see what you're saying, the grace that would allow us to savor you in this revelation of yourself, the grace then to embody what this commandment is teaching, to actually be a people who refuse to entertain imaginative ideas about you, who refuse to redefine you or reshape you according to our own preferences, but instead receive you in all that you are for us in your Son. 
Oh God, help us to humble ourselves, to listen well, and to say, Lord, whatever you would have us do, we will do. In Jesus' name, amen. The second word. The first thing you and I need to understand about the second of the ten words is simply this. Though you and I were made to reflect God, we are prone to reduce God. Now, we cannot understand what God is saying in these three verses of Scripture without first understanding our created purpose as human beings. Back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we read these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Both of those words appear in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And let them, men and women, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God ultimately, by creating us in his image and likeness, created you and I to reflect his character into the world and to represent him through our love for him, our love for others, and our care for the world in which he has placed us. In other words, you and I, we are made in the likeness of God in order to bring glory to God, in order to extend the reputation of God into all the crevices and the four corners of the earth. And we are to do this by delighting in him and by faithfully obeying his instructions. Now when Adam and Eve chose in Genesis chapter 3 to eat the fruit from the one forbidden tree, they chose to obey the voice of the serpent who effectively seduced them into believing a lie about God, to accept a reduced and diminished version of their creator. And once Adam and Eve bought that lie about God, namely that God could not possibly be good or wise if God was withholding something from them, they too began to imitate the serpent and to redefine God in their own image. Now, ever since that moment of fatal decision and departure from our created design, human beings have been in the habit of reducing and redefining God. When we exalt ourselves, we can't help but diminish God. We can't help but ask God to scoot over when we want to take our place at the center of our lives. 
Thus the need for the second word. Don't make for yourselves carved images or bow down to them or serve them. Now, if the first word or the first commandment, as it's often called, has to do with the who of worship, the second word has to do with the how of worship. The point being this, Yahweh is the God who names himself. I am who I am. The self-revealing and self-defining God. Therefore, according to God's own self-revealing character, it would be inconsistent for God to then look at human beings and say, I don't really care how you worship me or relate to me. However you want to do that, that's perfectly fine with me. But to shrink God down into a carved image is essentially and immediately to say that God is not the self-defining, self-revealing God, but that now I have encased him in this particular thing as opposed to that thing so that I can now access him through this thing. Now, why do we do this? Well, our hearts are bent toward autonomy. We are bent toward the building, the growing, the managing, and the extending of our own kingdoms. It's much easier to move forward with a project like that when you and I remake the infinite, all-powerful God into the image of some created thing that we can control and manipulate to our own ends. Now, I just want to be clear for a second. Last week, we talked about the fact that it's entirely possible to worship idols without making physical representations of those idols, without carving for ourselves something made out of wood or stone or precious metal. Idols amount to anything that takes God's rightful place in our hearts. In the same way, it's entirely possible to reduce or to redefine God without confining God to a particular image of some created thing. In fact, metal images always follow mental images. Or you could say it the other way around. Mental images always precede metal images. Today, we most often reduce and redefine God, not through physical images, but through reduced ideas about God. Notice how God reveals himself in the second commandment. In verse 5, he writes, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, these carved things. For the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate 
me. So right there, God is revealing himself to us as a just God. To be disobedient to the commands of God is to invite the judgment of God. He tells his people that he is righteous and that he will punish sin, specifically the sin of reducing and redefining him. Now, you and I have a hard time with that in our day and time because we believe that no one has the right to tell anyone else who they are or how to live their lives, including God. So God is reduced and God is redefined into a being who affirms our desires, who blesses our plans, who helps us out of a jam when our plans aren't working out, away with the idea of divine wrath. Never mind the fact that a good God must of necessity be the kind of God who will not allow evil to consume his creation if he is truly good. By the way, this is, um, this is one of two specific points at which the serpent came at Eve. The snake in Genesis chapter 3 flat out told her that she would not die if she ate of the forbidden tree. A bold-faced, blatant lie. But once that lie took hold in her mind, it took hold with life-altering force. We might translate the serpent's words like this. Eve, if you do this, there won't be any consequences. God lied to you, but you can trust me. Now be sure the enemy of our souls is still coming at you and at me with this very same lie. One of the reasons that you and I continue in sin like we do is we honestly believe we will never be found out. That there will never come a day when the piper must be paid. That there will never come a point in time when the judge will righteously call to account. But God says of himself that he will punish those who hate him. And one of the ways we demonstrate our hatred for him is by not trusting in and obeying his instructions. Now Yahweh also tells his people here that he's a God of never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Look at verse 6. 
Not only is God just, but he says in verse 6, he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, God is not fickle. God doesn't change with the times. God is not subject to the latest cultural trend. He is consistent. He is faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His people can trust that if they entrust themselves to him and obey his instructions, that they will only ever experience good from him. Because God's as good as his word. If he promises to do something for his people, they can be sure that he will come through for them. Now this is the second of two specific points at which the serpent came at Eve. The snake also insinuated that God just told her she would die if she ate from the tree, because frankly, God was simply reserving the good stuff for himself. That God was holding out on her and her husband. God didn't want to share with them. God wasn't generous. God was stingy. In other words, God isn't really good. God doesn't really love you. He's only looking out for himself. If you're going to experience the good life, you don't need to wait for him to give it because it's never going to happen. You need to do what? Take it. We might translate the serpent's words like this. Look, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but God doesn't really care about you. If you want to experience the good life, you're going to have to strike out on your own. You're going to have to listen to your heart. Now be sure, the enemy of our souls is still coming at you and me with that exact same lie. God's not good. God doesn't love you. Look at the wreckage of your past. Look at how you struggle in the present. Look at the fact that you've prayed this particular prayer for a dozen years and it doesn't seem like God has answered. Do you think he even knows your name, where you live, or the deepest needs of your heart? If you're going to be okay, you've got to strike out on your own. You've got to cut your own path. You've got to carve your own course. Now the problem with you and I is that we buy into these lies about God. We buy into these redefinitions, these reductions about God. We take the serpent's words to heart and his venom begins to course through our veins from the day of our birth. And we do not believe God is who he says he is and so we simply redefine him. We simply reduce him. We simply diminish him. When we do that, we buy into lies about ourselves and we diminish ourselves. Now, the part that I'm grateful for is simply this. 
We may chase after these things, but God won't have it. He loves his people too much. Now go back to the text with me. God gives his people a specific reason that they should obey this command. Verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to these carved images or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. Now, here God reveals himself to his people as a jealous God. And in fact, this is one of the first facts that God tells his people about himself in the book of Exodus. Now, jealousy is a word that has all kinds of negative connotations for us. It conjures up images of an insecure boyfriend who's always tracking the movements of his girlfriend, who's always accusing her of lying to him about where she's been, who she's been with, and how long she's been there, no matter what kind of proof she can offer otherwise. Because of things like this, you and I call jealousy the green-eyed monster. So how then can a good God, a righteous God, a perfect and holy God, be a jealous God? Well, you and I tend to confuse jealousy with envy, which is always prohibited in the Bible. What is envy? Envy is desiring something that doesn't belong to you, but instead rightfully belongs to someone else. Think a husband desiring the attention and affection of another man's wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jealousy, on the other hand, is a fervent desire for something that does rightfully belong to you. None of us would blame a wife for being deeply hurt, and rightly so, if she discovered that her husband had feelings for or was actively pursuing a relationship with another woman. In fact, if you and I could not empathize with her hurt and understand her anger, something would be wrong with us. So when God says that he is a jealous God, you and I need to picture God as the loving, committed husband who has vowed to remain forever faithful to his people through thick and through thin. Here at Sinai, he's entering into an exclusive covenant relationship with them. In fact, one of the lenses that I think is helpful for viewing what happens at Sinai is in fact the lens of a wedding ceremony. God comes to them 
and says, you will be my treasured possession. I'm committed to you. And what does he expect from them? The same kind of loyalty, the same kind of faithfulness, and the same kind of commitment. Now let me ask you a question. What spouse does not expect the exact same thing when repeating vows in a wedding ceremony? And who of us would not think it strange, even unloving, if a brand new husband looked at his wife immediately after the ceremony and said to her, hey, look, if, if you want to continue to, to date other men, I get it, and I'm cool with it. Right? If God had no problem sharing us with reduced, imagined versions of himself, which is essentially what carved images are, could God really be said to love us? After all, that would ultimately mean God believes that there is something better for us than himself. Which would be deeply inconsistent with what it means for God to be God and for God to be good. Thankfully, friends, God loves us too much to let us go without a fight. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Though Satan is always looking to lure us away from God through distortions about God, God is forever committed to the relationship. God will have our hearts for his glory and for our good, which means... God will not simply stand by and watch us walk away deceived. God won't have it. And here's the thing, we shouldn't either. What kind of people does God intend for this commandment to make the people of Israel into. Obviously a people who, rather than reducing him or redefining him, receive him as he has revealed himself. But more than that, a people who reflect his own character. In other words, if he is jealous for their exclusive loyalty, then shouldn't we as the people of God develop among us a corresponding jealousy for God? If God's jealousy is God's own passion for our exclusive love and loyalty, Shouldn't you and I have a corresponding passion for him if we are his people? 
So if God is zealous to guard the relationship he has with us, are we likewise zealous to guard the relationship we have with him? If God says, I'm committed to you through thick and through thin, and nothing will come between us, do you and I likewise say, God, we're committed to you through thick and thin, nothing will come between us? Do you and I, do we have a passion to guard and protect our relationship with God? Do you and I long to see God's name, God's character magnified and cherished more in our lives, in our small groups, in our Bible studies, in our kids' ministry, in our student ministry, in our men's ministry, in our women's ministry? Do we long for God to be supreme? Do our hearts break? Do our hearts break over what I see as the seeming lack of concern among the people of God for genuine holiness? Do our hearts ache within us over the seeming indifference of many Christians? to the way of Jesus. Over the lack of desire among so many who name the name of Christ to actually follow the Messiah. Do you and I experience something of a holy inner turmoil bordering, in fact, on anger. When God's name is dragged through the mud, not by a lost world, but by those who claim to name the name of Christ, but abuse women and children, who use the people of God for their own selfish gain rather than serving the sheep, who reduce and redefine God for their own evil purposes. Look, the only right response to God's jealous love for us is a jealous love for him. A love that longs to see him rightly loved for all that he is in my life in my home, in my small group, in my church, in my workplace, and in my community. Bishop J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican pastor, said it this way. The one who is jealous for God sees only one thing. He cares for only one thing. Thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies. Whether he has health or whether he has 
sickness. Whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God, to advance God's glory. Friends, this is how the Apostle Paul lived. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3. Powerful, powerful words about his love for the church. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a what? Divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I have that same fear for you. Surrounded as all of us are by innumerable voices speaking into our lives, the majority of them simply mouthpieces for the ancient serpent, I fear that you and I will be equally led astray as Paul feared that the Corinthians. Friends, you and I belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. Will we not be exclusively loyal to him? Will Will we not be faithful to the covenant that he's made with us? Unfortunately, I'm afraid we're as guilty of violating the second word as the people of Israel were. There is hope. There is hope. Jesus, our husband, is our hope. These verses, they highlight a dilemma that unfolds throughout but is never resolved in the Old Testament. Now, we've mentioned this dilemma before. And the dilemma is essentially this. How can God express his covenant love to his people, which is his ultimate desire, without consuming them because of their continual disobedience. In other words, how can God at the same time be just and justly reckon with sin while also remaining committed to the people with whom he's entered into a covenant. Well, in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 15, the Apostle Paul answers this question in a roundabout way. Writing of God, he says, He has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the what? Image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, did you catch that? I mean, really catch it. Jesus is the embodied icon, the perfect image, the reflective imitation in flesh and bone of who God is. He's the perfect reflection of God's character in human flesh because he is God. You see, in the end, God is not against images of himself. After all, he made us in his own image and likeness. God simply reserves the right to represent himself rather than be represented inadequately by fallen humans. So what does he do? He sends his son as the perfect reflection of his own character. This means that Jesus is the model of a human being made in the image and likeness of God who loves God with a jealous and zealous kind of love. His highest aim in life was and is the glory of his Father. I mean, you can see it. Take the scene in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, for instance. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered later that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Man, there was nothing that mattered more to Jesus than the glory of his father. You want to talk about a jealousy on display in a scene from his life. I don't think you can pick a better one than that one. But know this. More than being the model of a human being, reflecting the image of God, Jesus is the very means by which the image of God is restored in you and in me. Through him, image makers become image bearers. Once again, this is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, are being transformed into the same what? Image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from or through the Lord who is the Spirit. 
So Yahweh came down off the mountain in the person of Jesus Christ and tabernacled among his people, but it didn't stop there. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the curtain was torn so that now the people of God can dwell in his very presence, or let's turn that around a bit and say the very presence of God can dwell within us. So that having been image makers, the Spirit of God is at work in us as we walk with Jesus in order to make us more like him. He is the image of the invisible God. And if you want to know what God wants you to look like, look at him. Just as God removed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, that kingdom of death and darkness, and just as they escaped through the blood of a lamb slain on their behalf, so you too, and so myself, we have been plucked out of the realm of darkness by the blood of the lamb, and God has brought us into this realm of light and life and love and truth where he dwells among us. And once we've been delivered, God begins the work of redefining us, remaking us. Do you see how God is reversing the effects of the fall through his covenant-keeping son? His spirits come to live within us, friends. And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we will become like him. And that is essential. For you and I do become like those we walk with. We become people who devote ourselves to the Father, just as Jesus does. We become people who delight to know God for all that he is, rather than we would like for him to be. We become people who are jealous for his glory, who long for everyone to know the Father we know. Again, the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we reflect the character. is one of the reasons that the Lord Jesus invites us to his table so that we can spend a moment with him. Friends, through his spirit, he's here this morning. Through his spirit, he beckons us to come and to enjoy fellowship with him. This is not some ritual or routine. In fact, this is a time, as Paul says, to fellowship with Christ. And when he's talking to the Corinthian church about this meal, it comes in the context of a discussion about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he says, hey, look, it's okay to eat those sorts of things that are sold in the marketplace, but if you're partaking of that food as part of a worship ritual which involves a sacrifice made to an idol, you're basically committing 
spiritual adultery. Paul, in fact, in that passage goes so far as to ask the Corinthians, are you not provoking the jealousy of the Lord? When you and I come to this table, Christ communicates to us through the bread and through the cup that he's given himself to his people exclusively. That through his broken body and his shed blood, he's bought us and purchased us. Friends, we're his bride. And as we come and we fellowship with this king who's given his everything to us, don't you think he expects everything from us in return? He does. Now, here's the amazing thing. Some of you, some of you are sitting out there and you belong to Jesus. You're a follower of Christ, but you've had a rough week. You look back and you say, man, I've said some things I shouldn't have said. I've made some decisions I shouldn't have made. God surely wasn't supreme in my thinking or my relating to other people this week. Maybe I just shouldn't come. No, 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 no. Jesus has given you all of himself and he wants all of you. The good, the bad, the ugly. He does. If you sit there this morning and you withhold the bad and the ugly from him, what you're saying is, Jesus, I can fix myself. I know I got these issues. Man, I'm not ready to show those to you yet. Just give me a little bit of time. No, no, no. Jesus says, come. Come and eat with me. Come and drink with me. In fact, Jesus himself is the only one who can change us. The only one who can make us into people who delight in and are devoted to his Father. So if you belong to Jesus, whether you've had a good week or a bad one, a successful week, or your life feels full of defeats, you come. The only people Jesus says, hey, you shouldn't come, are those who refuse to bring their sin to him, but instead delight in it and would rather hold on to it, and those who don't belong to him. Those who are carving their own path in life, who don't have a real relationship with him. If that's you, talk to me. Man, let me show you how to receive Christ and be prepared next week to come to his table. Let me ask the worship team to come and those who are serving communion to come and prepare. And I would ask you to prepare your own heart this morning to receive these small, tangible tokens of the Lord's affection for you. That's what they are. Through the bread and the cup, Christ communicates to us by faith that he truly is for us and not against us. May that reality melt our hearts of stone this morning. The way that we do this here at Mountain View is